Well, good morning, church. Welcome. 930 service. Excited to be with you all this morning. As Carson said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Uh, before we get to our sermon, I do want to really quickly make a shameless plug for the upcoming men's retreat. Uh, I know this is a large church and you're constantly being bombarded, bombarded with, come to this, sign up for that. I want you to ignore all that and listen to me right now. You need to sign up for this. Man, you need to be there. Uh, I really believe that our retreats, men's, women's, the youth are on retreat right now. Uh, these are the places where some of the most significant transformation happens. Uh, and so this would encourage you to consider making that investment. Uh, I think it will be well worth it if you do. Um, we've got an amazing speaker coming in, Stephen James, a man who's had a huge impact on my life, on Pastor Daniel's life. It's going to be a really rich time away. And we, ju we just, guys, we need this time away. We need to get away to be with God, to be with other brothers. So if you haven't signed up already, I encourage you to do that. The retreat's November 3rd and 4th. You can sign up on our website. The cost is $100. There are scholarships available. We do have a limited number of slots, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and sign up now uh, so that we can make sure that you're there. Uh, so that's, without further ado, we're going to shift away from my shameless plug and into God's Word. Uh, we are continuing our fall sermon series entitled Encountering Jesus. And in this series, we have been looking at uh, what is the impact? What is the consequence of coming encounter, of having an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ? And this morning we're going to be looking at a very famous encounter between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And so uh, we're going to be reading in John chapter 3. If you'll turn there with me, uh, there are extra verses in the, in the bulletin. We're just going to be reading verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to invite you now to stand, uh, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. So this is John chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit his spirit. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures uh, forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word. As we spend time this morning in your scriptures, we pray that we would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So over the past couple months, as we've been in this series, what we have seen time and time again is that when people encounter Jesus, more often than not, their lives are fundamentally transformed. They are forever changed. 
We often call this a conversion experience. Conversion is the process by which one who is not a follower of Jesus becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or as the prophet Hosea says, to go from not my people to the people of God. And this morning, I want us to zoom in on this idea of conversion. And our text this morning offers three main points about conversion. The first that we see is who needs to be converted. The second is how does conversion happen? And the third is what are the consequences of conversion? So who needs to be converted? How does conversion happen? And what are the consequences of conversion? So let's begin. Who needs to be converted? I wonder if you have ever come in contact with someone who appears to have it going on in every possible way. I think we all know people like this. They're successful in their job and they've got this perfect family. They've got more money than they know what to do with. Not only that, they're extremely off the charts smart as well. You, you try to bring them some sort of insight or wisdom and then they inform you that they studied that in grad school. We know what people like this are like and when you're with them, you can often feel inadequate. That sense of, I'd love to offer you something, but what could you possibly need or want? Nicodemus was this sort of guy. In a society where power and influence was concentrated around religion and wealth, Nicodemus was at the top of the food chain. Let's look briefly at what the text says about this man. The text first says that he was a Pharisee, meaning he had reached the top of the educational ladder. Pharisees, these were the thought leaders and shapers of Israel. Their ideas were not challenged. When they spoke, people listened. Not only that, the text says that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was functionally the supreme court for the nation of Israel. He'd reached the top of the political ladder too. I think it's worth noting here, much like today, you didn't acquire a position on the Sanhedrin without an immense amount of wealth. So he, on top of climbing the educational and political ladders, he was at the top of the financial ladder as well. And then last but not least, the members of the Sanhedrin, they would have been older men. And although that may not matter as much today in this society, they, they very much respected and honored their elders. All that to say, this brother had it going on. He was the man. And so what in the world was a man like this doing coming to Jesus? What could Jesus have offered to Nicodemus that he needed? And the answer is, according to Nicodemus, not much. So look with me again at the text. Scholars have debated why Nicodemus set up this meeting, why he came. Some argue that he's trying to trap Jesus, which the Pharisees often do. Others think he's trying to maybe get Jesus on his side to use him for his purposes. But what all scholars agree with is that Nicodemus does not come to Jesus needy. The first evidence of that is found in verse 2. What we take note of is that although Nicodemus sets up this meeting, he begins not with a question but with a statement. Nicodemus is a man of privilege and power. He's looking at this young man, a, a child compared to him. I mean, what could this little boy possibly offer that Jesus, that Nicodemus didn't already have? 
And so instead of asking for something, Nicodemus simply declares, I've seen what you've done, Jesus, and I know that you can't do those things unless God is with you. And maybe there's a question underneath there. Maybe he's asking, what's your secret? Maybe you can give me some tips, but he's not even humble enough to ask. But what I want you to focus in on is not what Nicodemus says, but how Jesus responds. And what's extremely strange, bizarre here is that instead of Jesus responding to what Nicodemus said and talking about the signs that he does, Jesus starts rambling on about birth and kingdoms. And why would he do that? Well, there's a clue for us in the chapter right before this. At the end of chapter 2, this is what John says. He says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust to them because he knew all people. Excuse me, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man. This is the key. For Jesus himself knew what was in man. It's a super significant statement there at the end. Jesus is inform, or excuse me, John is informing us that Jesus' actions are being guided by, by his knowledge of what's inside men. It's kind of a throwback statement to Psalm 139 when David talks about God, even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it. See, what John is doing here is he's declaring that Jesus, as the Son of God, knows the very heart of Nicodemus, which makes sense out of what Jesus says because he's not responding to Nicodemus' words. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus' heart. Verse 3, he says, truly, truly, meaning listen up, this is important, Unless one is born again, Nicodemus, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A quick note here about this idea of kingdom. The kingdom of God was something that was very familiar to a first century Jew. It's because it was talked about and prophesied extensively in the Old Testament. So when there was conversation around kingdom... What, they, what the people of God assumed is that they were talking about this eternal resurrection life that God had promised to his people that was to come at the end of the age. The kingdom of God was what God's people were looking forward to, were longing to, longing to receive the time when all the promises of God would come to fruition, when the whole earth would be filled with God's glory, a worldwide shalom. Now, the problem is the Jewish teachers of the day, they believed that in order to see that kingdom, your life needed to be marked by obedience to God's commands. You get to see the kingdom if you are a faithful enough Jew, which is good for Nicodemus because there was no more faithful Jew than him. But this brings us to our big aha moment of the text. Because Jesus is speaking right to that faithfulness that Nicodemus believes he possesses. And he says in verse 3, even you, Nicodemus, even you have not been faithful enough to see the kingdom of God. I want to sit here for just a minute because this is such a foundational point that Jesus is making. Because what he's saying is it means that in order to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, it's not about faithfulness, but rather about conversion. I can tell you right now, a man of Nicodemus's stature would not have appreciated this. But what about you? 
How does this idea sit with you? That you can't be faithful enough to earn God's favor. And I realize some of you are probably thinking, wait a minute, I'm not that bad. I work hard to be a good person, to be a blessing to society, to love my neighbor, to not hurt or offend anyone. And yet the point that Jesus is making here is that God's standard is so much higher than that. The requirement is not that we simply live a relatively good life, that we're a relatively good person, but even more than that, that we have a pure heart in doing it. There's a verse in the Old Testament that always kind of haunts me, Isaiah 64, verse 6. The prophet says, we have all become like one who is unclean. He says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. And what the prophet is, is saying here is that even on our best days, even our best actions are still polluted by our sinful hearts. It's hard to hear, but I think if we're honest, we know that to be true. I want you to think for a moment about your motives. Like how often are the nice things that you do actually done in part so that people will like you more, so that people will think you're a good person? Or maybe you do them to make up for some of the bad things that you've done in life. The truth is our motives, they're always mixed. They're always a blend of good and bad intentions. E even right now, as I stand in this pulpit, I'm preaching to glorify God and to gain glory for myself. Isn't that gross? <laughs> but it's true. As the prophet Jeremiah says, because of sin, our hearts are deceitful above all things, and terribly wicked. And because this is true, we are now able to confidently answer this first question, who needs to be converted? And the answer is all of us. We all need to be converted, even you, Nicodemus, even you, Christ Central Church. Which brings us to our second point. It's clear that we all need to be converted, but how? How then are we to be converted? I feel somewhat blessed that I've gotten to witness a wide variety of childbirths in my life. I've seen two natural births. If you don't know what that is, you can ask later. I've seen a birth that involved an epidural, and I've seen a C-section. Four wildly different experiences, and I'm just talking from an observer's perspective. I know that's very limited. This is what I've seen. But there's one thing that I observed that was true, and I can confidently say this, all four times, all four times the child was not helpful in the birth. <laughs> My four children contributed nothing to their own childbirth. In fact, some of them actually made it more difficult by turning the wrong way or getting caught up in the umbilical cord or going to the bathroom prior to departure. But my wife and the midwives and the doctors, they did all the work. And the point is that being born is an utterly passive activity. It is something that is done to us. It is done for us. It is not done by us. Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 3 that in order to be converted, in order to see the kingdom, he must be born again. To see the kingdom, he needs the help of something outside of himself. We need someone to create new life in us. We need a, a new life that comes from another realm, or as some translations say, from above. And yet, Nicodemus, he just 
can't wrap his mind around this idea. So is why verse 4, it's almost comical. He says, Jesus, do you want me to climb back in my mother's womb? I don't get it. And then Jesus unpacks it even more. Verse 5, he says, truly, truly, pay attention, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, throughout the Old Testament, water is used as a metaphor for life, in particular, the life that God gifts to his people, the life that is gifted to God's people through the Spirit of God. Nicodemus, you need the Spirit. You need life. He goes on in verse 6. He's saying that there's a distinction here. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, there's two separate births. One occurs in the flesh, one occurs in the Spirit. But the whole point, Nicodemus, is that birth is something that is done to us and not for, by us. We, the child, are the recipients. I love John Calvin's commentary. He says, by the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. We cannot birth ourselves. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor. I feel like there are a lot of scriptures that talk about a call to action on the part of the non-believer. And that's right. There, there's no question that God expects us to respond to this new point. But the point of John chapter 3 is, is that this new birth originates with God. He initiates the work. He is the one doing the work. It is a gift. And it's only after the Spirit moves in our hearts that we begin to turn from our wicked ways and begin to walk in faith towards God. This is why often theologians will differentiate between regeneration or rebirth and conversion. It helps us to understand the difference between what God does as he gives us new life and then what we do is we simply respond to the new life that has been given to us. And unless we fully grasp this truth that to be born again is a gift, we're going to fall into the same trap that Nicodemus fell into, believing that we are an integral part of our own salvation, that it's our performance that enables us to see the kingdom of God. But the truth is we are the baby, and it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are born again and able to see the kingdom of God. I want to press on this a little bit more because I imagine there's some of us who are thinking that I'm not really that much like Nicodemus. You may not resonate with this idea of trying to be good enough to earn your way into the kingdom of God. And yet what I'd like to argue is I, I truly believe that all of us are trying to save ourselves in some form or fashion. See, Nicodemus, he was trying to save himself through his own goodness, through, through his morality. But for some of us, it's not morality that is our savior, but maybe our success. We believe that if, if we are successful, that we will have some sort of satisfaction and meaning in this life. For, for others, it's comfort that's our functional savior. We live our lives believing if we can achieve some certain level of comfort, that we get the right house and the right car and the right clothes and a, a, a heavy enough 401k, then we will be truly satisfied. The list goes on and on. All these different things that we look to for meaning and purpose in life, the Bible calls these idols. Things that we look to to develop a righteousness or a sense of worth for ourselves. Anything that we look to apart from God for our salvation. 
The way that you know you're living for an idol is to examine how you respond when these things are taken away. For example, let's say your idol is comfort and, and, and you lose all your money. Your, your savings account goes to zero or you have to sell your car. What will you do? Or if your idol is approval and the word gets out that you're not really that good of a person. Whatever it might be, you know, these circumstances are hard. But when we have idolatry in our lives, when we lose these things, we don't get upset. We want to die. We want to stop living. And the point that Jesus is trying to make to Nicodemus, who is worshiping idols, he's saying that those things that you're living for, they cannot save you. They cannot give you new life. To, to be alive, you need to be born again, born from above. That's how conversion happens. It's not by our own merit, but we are converted by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our third and final point, the consequences of conversion. Throughout this dialogue, Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand, but he's struggling. He can't seem to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and what we see here is the reason he can't understand is because he's unwilling to let go of his idols. He's unwilling to let go of his identity as a, a faithful man of God who has performed well and deserves to be rewarded by God. See, Nicodemus, he doesn't want... God to remake him. He just wants Jesus to simply make his current identity a little bit stronger. Help me out here, Jesus. But what Jesus is offering to Nicodemus is to get rid of that old identity and to give him a whole new identity. Identity that's rooted in not what he has done, but what has been done for him. The identity of a child of God. One who's been born again by the Spirit. That's what it means to enter into the kingdom of God to turn from our old identity, from our attempts to save ourselves. We call this repentance. And then we embrace that new identity, identity that has been gifted to us, a new inheritance, and we call that faith. So we enter the kingdom of God by being born again and then responding with repentance and with faith. Now there's even more. What's beautiful is if we look closely at the words of Jesus in verse 3, it says not only are we to enter the kingdom of God, but he talks about us seeing the kingdom of God. What Jesus is highlighting here is that when we are born again, we not only get a new identity, but we also are able to see the world differently. We call this a, a new worldview. It's what it means to see the kingdom. And what does that look like? It looks like through the power of the Spirit that we begin to have different values we begin to desire things that maybe we didn't desire for before. We begin to love the things that God loves, like justice, mercy, a newfound love for those who are marginalized and oppressed. At the same time, we begin to dislike things that we didn't used to dislike, to hate the things that God hates, like poverty and racism, greed and infidelity. That's, that's a kingdom worldview. It's important here for us to see that, church. Conversion is not rooted in behavior. It's not about becoming a better person. But the good news is that the new birth, it does change us. It gives us a new identity as a child of God, and it gives us a whole new outlook on life. One who is growing more and more in our love for the things that God loves and our hate for the things that God hates. I want to conclude by looking one last time at this idea of being born again. There's even more here, I think, in terms of why Jesus chooses this metaphor. 
Because Jesus lived long before the invention of epidurals and anesthetics and forceps. And although childbirth has become a lot more safe today, in the first century it was not safe. Excruciatingly painful and dangerous. As one commentator states, no one was born into that world unless someone loved them enough to not only experience tremendous pain and suffering, but even more than that, to put her life on the line for you. Countless boys and girls were given their life in exchange for the death of their mothers. Do you see how this metaphor is so beautifully fitting? Because church, the only way that we can be born again is through the pain and suffering of someone else. One who didn't just risk their life, but actually gave their life for us. This is what Jesus is talking about. He picks this up again in John 16. He says... In a little while, you will see me no more. But don't be sad because here's why. And this is what he says, verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. If you study John, you'd notice that every time Jesus talks about his death, he calls it his hour. See what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the woman in labor. And when my hour comes, when I go to the cross, in spite of all the pain and the suffering, I will be filled with joy by the sight of you, my child. Although this new birth cost Jesus much, cost him everything, what the text reveals is that Jesus was delighted to endure the pain and suffering for you and for me. I want to pick back up on our main character, Nicodemus, blinded by ignorance, chained down by his false identity, but he shows up in the crowd on the day that Jesus is crucified. He witnesses Jesus' final hour. He sees the Son of Man being lifted up, and he's converted. Gains a whole new identity and a whole new view on life. And here's how we know that this happened. See, Jesus pop, uh, Nicodemus pops up again in John's gospel right after Jesus' death. And the text says that Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, they asked for the body of Jesus. And that seems like a throwaway line for many of us. But, but the point is here, this was a huge deal. Because the normal practice for a criminal was to let the vultures take care of the body. And by asking for the body, he was subjecting himself to incredible scrutiny by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He lays down his idol of power. The text says that he then brought 70 pounds of spices to prepare the body for burial. This amount of spices would have cost a fortune. A burial fit for a king. Nicodemus lays down his idol of money and comfort. And then lastly, the text says that he and Joseph, they actually physically prepared Jesus' body for burial. But the problem is that was a task that was reserved for slaves, a menial, disgusting task. Nicodemus lays down his idol of status. All these things reveal that Nicodemus had been converted, that when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, that he laid down his identity of one who was faithful and deserving of God's blessing and instead embraced this identity of one who was utterly and wholly undeserving and yet graciously gifted this new life in Christ. Church, my charge for us this morning 
is to, like Nicodemus, look to the Son of Man who has been lifted up for you. The one who endured the pain and suffering of the cross, the full wrath of God for our sins so that you and I might be born again. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for all that you endured, the pain, the suffering, that you gave your very life so that we might be born again. And Jesus, we acknowledge that we are unworthy. We are not deserving. We have not performed well enough. We haven't been faithful enough, but we are grateful of your gracious gift. And Father, may we all respond in repentance and faith as we walk with you as your children, beloved by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.